Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Hey everyone. For those of you still keeping track of the days, it's Wednesday, September 16th, 2020. I'm tired, you're tired, but I'll tell you who's not tired. Carrie Coon and Kat Solon, our guests today. I'm very sorry for that tired segue. Let me try this again. Take two. Okay. Hey, everyone. For those of you... Okay, forget that. Today on the show, I am pleased to have on Carrie Coon and Kat Solon. Two artists, one episode. Carrie is a performer on stage and screen And Kat is a director with a wonderful new program called The Shivering Truth. I'll tell you more about her later in the episode. For now, Carrie Coon. You've seen her on TV shows like Fargo and The Leftovers. You've seen her in films like Gone Girl and Widows. If you're lucky, you've seen her on stage in Chicago at Steppenwolf or perhaps even on Broadway in New York. Her latest performance comes in a new film called The Nest. And let me tell you something. I love this movie. Those of you who listen to this podcast often know I don't mention love often unless we're talking about divorce. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. That joke made me laugh when I wrote it. It's going to stay in. This is a bonus episode. I told you it was going to be more loose. I hope it didn't offend anyone. Mom, Dad, I'm sorry. But in my defense, the subject of divorce is, 
at times at the center of the nest. It's a familial drama of minor proportions. Its scope is small. It's about a family that moves from America to London in search of a better life. But really, it's a movie set around a quietly tumultuous marriage between Rory and Allison, played by Jude Law and Carrie Coon. Here's a bit from the trailer. You're embarrassing. And you're exhausting. I paid our rent. I paid for Ben's school. I bought you a car. I bought you a horse. I paid for construction on your barn. You're delusional. I'll make money for us. For us? It's not for us. It's so you can go to fancy parties and tell people we have horses. For the first time in years, I feel worthwhile. I feel powerful. You're a poor kid pretending to be rich. We don't have any friends here. We don't have any family. What does it matter so much to you? Because I deserve this! Directed by Sean Durkin, the film is a tightly wound psychological drama, with Carrie's character serving as the story's moral center. That's just some fancy footwork, though. The nest, really, is the kind of picture people complain doesn't exist anymore. And they're right. Films this precise, this refined, this measured, don't often get made. So, if you can... Give it some love as it opens in select theaters September 18th. Should you be near one of those select theaters, please do so safely and under the guidelines of your local health officials. For those of you not comfortable going to a theater, I hear you, it will be available at home on demand November 17th. We'll be including links on how and where to watch The Nest in our show notes at www.talkeasypod.com. Also on our website, you can find a conversation with Tracy Letts, Carrie's partner. It's a past episode we discuss in the talk you're about to hear right now. And I think it's a really good companion piece to this episode. So without further ado, thank you for being here. I hope you're staying safe and I hope this episode helps you get through whatever day you're having, wherever you're having it. Be well. Carrie Coon. Yes. Are you okay? I'm great. I have a babysitter. (laughs) I'm great. I'm a little thirsty, but I'll be all right. Go get water. No, no. I no. Are you sure? I'm a Midwesterner. Yes, I love martyrdom. I love suffering. <laughs> I just want someone to know. As long as somebody knows that I'm martyring myself, then everything is well. So you just want me to feel bad for you. Sure, sure, but like passive aggressively. That's you know, you're from the Midwest. No, of course I don't want you to feel bad, Sam. I'm just really thirsty. (laughs) I got over my passive aggression. I just became (laughs) aggressive aggressive. Yeah, it's just normal aggression now. (laughs) Is that the LA driving? Is that? No, 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 no. It totally predates that. I wish I could blame it on driving or strangers. (laughs) Totally. It was a a choice? Was it a choice? No, it's not a choice. Was it an organic process? I just decided that passivity never got me anywhere. Or if it did get me somewhere, it just took too long. So mm-hmm. I decided I'm just going to be normal aggressive. You just summed up feminism. Really? 
basically. <laughs> this passivity is not getting us anywhere. I wasn't trying. <laughs> I, I, I have so many things to talk to you about. Can we go back to you as a five-year-old for a moment? You had this tendency as a five-year-old to uh, lay in your bed and contemplate the apocalypse. A lot of children are focused on what they're going to have for lunch, but you had slightly more serious, morbid preoccupations. So as someone who grew up as a kid contemplating the apocalypse, what has it been living through this time that could be considered an apocalypse? <laughs> I do feel like I've been preparing for this whole moment, this moment my entire life. Perhaps you could say that this all started with the leftovers because that was really the my peak apocalypse, but it really does feel existential feels like we're in an existential time and that it's happened in my lifetime when everyone told me as a five-year-old that it wouldn't feels a little bit, I feel betrayed. I feel betrayed. I used to say to my parents, well, when is Jesus going to come back? And they'd say, not in your lifetime. And now it feels like perhaps the rapture is just around the corner, like maybe November 1st. Who is Jesus in this case? <laughs> right. Well, he's not white. <laughs> I mean, in this, in this story, he's white. <laughs> But in, in real life, he's really not very white. <laughs> and I went away and got an education and learned that. <laughs> and and what, what class did you learn that in? No, no, there's no class. I mean, I was in my catechism class in my little town in Ohio. One of my catechism teachers told me that girls shouldn't play sports because it would ruin our reproductive organs. And I wasn't even in a conservative church. But the blessing for me was that my father is a, an, a well-educated, open-minded man who almost but did not become a priest. So my dad went away to study with some Jesuits in fifth grade and firmly believes in the existence of God, but he didn't think that Catholicism was the only and one true religion. He believed that God would show up to people in whatever way they could receive him, and therefore all world religions were valid. So my father was not dogmatic. My father believed in the Bible as an historical document. And so there was room for all kinds of contemplation. So every apocalypse is valid. When you're in eighth grade and you receive confirmation, shortly thereafter you have a conversation with your father in which he says to you, okay, now you figure it out. Decide what you want to be. My dad did have an open mind, but he also believed firmly in personal responsibility. He's often said now that it might have been to our detriment that he gave us so much leeway to make mistakes, to learn lessons, that he didn't weigh in more. So I think looking back, he thinks that perhaps he, he might have been a little too hands off sometimes. But I did appreciate that in terms of my religious education. But of course, I had a mom who didn't go to church. There were both things existing in my household from the jump. How has it been to your detriment? Well, I suppose because my I think of my dad as a really smart guy, he probably could have he probably could have convinced us we were making mistakes, but that's not really true because as my husband says in one of the plays he wrote, Linda Vista, there's a whole speech of this guy giving his friend advice. He says, It doesn't matter what I say because you're gonna do what you're gonna do. So I think my dad actually just understands that, that people are going to do what they're going to do. And there's, there's no amount of advice you could give them that's going to keep them or dissuade them from going away and doing that thing and learning that lesson, especially if they're 17. And in my case, I was a very outwardly responsible kid. I 
I went to school. I went to class. I was a straight-A student. I liked going to school, and I didn't get into trouble, and I didn't like being in trouble, and I didn't like being yelled at. So I wasn't somebody who needed a lot of advice until later. But then, I, by then, I was basically living a double life, and I wasn't asking for advice anyway. So, When were you living a double life? When I was in my 20s, you know, I was a pathological liar. I've been pretty open about my proclivities, you know, before I turned 30. What were you lying about? Mostly it was about relationships. You know what it's really about? It's about not wanting to disappoint anyone. And it's also about controlling information. And you convince yourself that you're controlling information to protect someone else. But in fact, it's all about yourself, your own ego, your inability to, you know, have a confrontation. That's what it was largely about for me was that I wasn't capable of standing up for myself in any way. And so the only way to get out of something was just to have it explode in my face. You have a quote, which is that uh, you had two boyfriends at one moment. And Mm -hmm. I love this rationale for why you didn't tell them. (laughs) You said, well, they both need me. Yeah, I really I really believed that. My grandmother wrote me a letter. My grandmother was a very smart and wonderful person that helped raise me. And in her letter, she writes, pity is not the same thing as love. But I didn't know the difference. And I also thought that the only way that someone would love me is if I made myself indispensable to them. And it didn't matter if I actually was. I just needed to believe that I was. (laughs) Right? It's not really about them at all. None of it was. When did that change for you? That sort of outlook? I was just turning 30. I was in a relationship and I had never trusted that anybody could handle what I thought was deeply interesting complication. (laughs) Turns out (laughs) I'm just like everybody else. But as a middle child, I desperately needed to believe in my own specialness. And I just didn't trust that anybody would be able to take on everything I had going on. I just didn't believe in people's capacity to do that. It's partly... It sounds like it's a superiority complex, but it's actually just comes from a deeply insecure place like most bravado. So Tracy, I really believed, could handle everything and I could put all the cards on the table, so to speak. And he could too. And that felt really unusual to me and and special. Did you ever sort of pinpoint the moment when you're in your 20s kind of lying your way through it where you thought, Maybe a profession where you have to spend some amount of time lying is a good idea? I didn't necessarily think of the lying as a parallel to acting. Because in some ways, acting became a more truthful place. Acting was the truth, and it had nothing to do with lying. They were sort of different parts of me. And for I think for a lot of women hyper-compartmentalization is what we do. And we do it very well. It's how we wear all the different hats and take on different responsibilities. And and then we spend a lot of time trying to integrate ourselves. Now, I can't speak to a man's experience because I'm not a man. I don't know what it's like for you guys. And you have very different societal pressures than we have. But I feel like women are, are supposed to have it all and do it all. And so the work of my integration started at that time when I met Tracy and I started to have more mental health intervention and get well. And, you know, overcome my compulsive disorder. And there were just a lot of things I was dealing with. But having a place, like one place where I could put it all felt like the first step. In an unpleasant way, the nest 
kind of perfectly represents this moment. It's about a family that moves from America to England in search of a better, more fruitful life, or ostensibly that's a logline. But aside from the plot, I think the uneasiness, the instability at the center of the story, so closely resembles the feelings of uneasiness and instability people feel right now. I wonder if you've been thinking about that at all. I hadn't actually thought about it, mostly because when the the diff, the distance between making a film and then seeing it and having it come out in the world is quite there's there's a great distance between that and the person I was and the life I was living when I made it is so different than the person I am when it's coming out and I haven't seen it since life changed so I haven't thought about that resonance very much what kind of person were you when you were making this movie that's funny i guess that made that sound probably heavier and more interesting than it is what i was was a mom with an 8 month old and I'd been playing moms for years and had never actually been one. And so I had had the C-section and I had this kid and my husband was about to go make Ford v. Ferrari. And I was going to go by myself to London with my new baby and start shooting this film. And I felt for the first time wildly underprepared because I had a kid. I didn't have time. And I thought, what was I doing with all that free time? Like, how did I used to prepare? Because now I just show up. And I have my lines memorized, but I haven't done a lot of preparation. There wasn't, a, but you know, on some level, there, there's so many. When when a script is well written, everything you need is there. Everything you need is on the page. And Sean Durkin's scripts are very tight and very specific. And so I knew, I trusted that everything I needed was was there for me. And I grew up in the 80s. I wasn't an adult, but I was a kid. So you know, the the time period was something that is in my body somewhere. And also, I got to play a mom as a mom, which was different. But in some ways, it was just a it was just having to accept where I was in my preparation, which felt not thorough, and just show up every day and trust that we would we would be able to make the thing we were trying to make. When you were making it, what did you think the film was about? If I think about when I read it, what struck me about it was it was about the tacit agreements that are made in a marriage. And I had never seen a film that dealt with that subject outside of some tragedy, outside of death, divorce, cheating. It wasn't about any of those things that, that make the stuff that are the stuff of drama typically. And so for me, it was actually it actually felt really real and really truthful. My parents are still married. I've got grandparents that have been married for over 75 years. And there was no divorce in my family up until a couple of years ago. So the marriage is something that transcends any obstacle is very real for me. And I also felt the presence of their past. And I think in the movie, you, you get the feeling that Allison and Rory are really well suited for each other. And that when they met, they were a really good time. And they were the people you wanted to hang out with. And... And the thing about marriage is that those those tacit agreements, they're by nature unspoken, and they but they still have to be renegotiated when they become aberrant or when they're not serving the relationship. And some marriages survive that process and some of them don't. It's a choice you make. You make a choice whether you're going to refashion these tent poles that your marriage is it's holding up your marriage, you know? And I think you can argue whether or not you think they survive it, but most marriages keep going. That's the reality. You said that and I was like, well, not in my family. <laughs> right. No. right. 
We got like an 0 for 7 number here. <laughs> Amazing. So when you look at Allison and Rory's marriage, what do you think? Do you think it's healthy? Do you think they're going to make it? Or do you think no marriage will ever make it? No, stop. <laughs> no. Um, no, I, I'm, I'm young enough to believe it can still work. When I look at their marriage, so, so this is between your character and Jude Law's character. Do I think it's healthy? Probably not. Mm-hmm. But um, I often go back to um, what a friend told me maybe two or three years ago. She said, everyone wants to tell you about your relationship. But the truth is, love really is a sort of island onto itself. And the only two people that can really understand it are the two people in it. So from a film perspective, I thought as an observer, I don't know. Did you think it was a healthy marriage? I think marriages are as specific as the people that are in them and as complicated as the people in them. And Allison bears some responsibility for arriving at the place they find themselves by what she's been willing to accept and perhaps by the ways she's not been able to be fully expressed in that marriage. But I also think there is a some fundamental belief in his his vision and his confidence he was to have a dreamer in your life is really exciting to have somebody with that's forward thinking is is intoxicating and who can enroll other people in a vision that's really heady stuff and i understand why somebody wants to believe in that and at the same time the dreamer's convictions don't exist in a vacuum. They have to be held up by belief. And so when that belief is shaky, that's that person's foundation. So I, I think you're right. There's some things that are unexamined. And, but that was also a time when people weren't examining those things. When my sister was adopted from El Salvador in the middle of a civil war, nobody said, you might want to get some trauma counseling. Nobody said that. They just said, good luck, Christian people. Good for you. So... The 80s was not a time when we were when we were being really intentional about those things, or at least you and I were both from the Midwest. There's a real stoicism about your problems. You don't complain about them. You suck it up. You take it. You figure it out. You don't talk about it with other people. And I think Allison and Rory are also, their relationship is forged in that crucible in that time. So it is a little bit different than now where maybe we're hyper-examining <laughs> what we do publicly on the internet, or at least presenting an image of what we think people will believe or want to believe or that we want to believe as the only person in this conversation married what are the sort of larger questions you ask yourself in your own life about marriage i when i grew up in in ohio i suspected i would just get married and have a bunch of kids because that's what everybody did <laughs> and that's what some of my friends did do and then as I got further away from my home, and I knew I was going to leave, I think people, there are certain people who are always going to leave, and my husband was one of them, and so was I. I think I got to a point where I thought, well, there's no way I could ever be in a marriage. There's no way I could ever be in a long-term anything. It feels repressive to me. And also, I don't feel built for it. I'm too damaged. <laughs> so, you know, that, that old song, and that's a very, I think, the purview of our 20s. We think we're just too, it's very dramatic to be too damaged for anyone. Come to find out, when I when I was well partnered, 
I found that marriage was one of the most liberating things I ever did. And I don't know if it will always feel that way, but Tracy and I, actually, this is our, it's our anniversary, though it's actually yesterday, but we, we got married in the hospital and we, we had to fake it and backdate our, you know, our license one day. So it's legally today, but actually yesterday. That, that, and, that, and that sounds totally normal to people listening. <laughs> right, right. You know, get married in the hospital. It's very cheap. It was covered by WGA insurance. Uh, I highly recommend it. I didn't have to wear any makeup. It was glorious. My husband had a beautiful off-the-shoulder green gown and sticky socks. But, you know, getting married in the hospital, is, that's life and death. I mean, my husband was getting his gallbladder removed. And um, that's the stuff. It's like sickness and in health. I guess so, because here we are. And so for me, I feel like the reason my marriage feels liberating is because it's an honest place. And I don't think I would be, I think the only way to get, be a better artist is to be honest, is to pr- practice being honest. And I really feel like not only that, but there's also space for me to be honest about my ambition, about the things that I want as a woman. My husband is an actual feminist. (laughs) My husband is my biggest supporter and fan and there's no jealousy. I mean, he's 55. He's beyond a lot of that male ego stuff. It does change as you get older. It does. I mean, my husband's still ambitious and still working, but, you know, we're raising a toddler and it's a 55-year-old dad is different than a 35-year-old dad. It's just, there's different stuff. And he has so much more perspective. And so he has so much more patience for what it is to be a human being. And my husband suffered some really, really horrible losses. And he's also been sober for 27 years. So he's done a lot of work on himself. I will say, to give credit where credit is due. Tracy came on last year and it was unequivocally one of my favorite of these. And many people have written and said how much that conversation meant to them. That's so satisfying to hear that because I so look up to Tracy and, you know, look forward to his advice when he's willing to give it. He's really good at not giving advice. So... Oh, I said that about my dad earlier. I didn't make the connection. I, I did. I just did. This is what your show is doing for people, making connections. Tracy's really good at knowing, not giving unsolicited advice, which is actually part of sobriety too, is just knowing what's your own business and taking care of your side of the street. He's really good at taking care of his side of the street. What do you think you're good at as a new mother? I give my, hus- my son space for his feelings. I don't try to make them better. But I, I let him understand that, that there's nothing he can do or say that's too much for me to handle. Because that wasn't necessarily how I felt, right? I learned that I had to conceal parts of myself in order to be acceptable. And I don't want him to feel that way. So I think I'm really good at giving him a lot of room and letting him understand that I'm not intimidated by what he's doing. Not in, a, not in, an, in an overbearing way, not in a shutting him down way, but just that, you know, Move through that. I can take it. I can take it seems to be a kind of mantra for you. (laughs) You have three grandparents in their 90s right now in this once in a century pandemic. You have called them sort of inscrutable, wise, stable. How much of that do you think you've inherited? It's certainly in the DNA I mean, I also think it's generational because I have grandparents that 
that lived through the Great Depression. My grand, one of my grandfathers survived the Battle of the Bulge in World War II. One of them didn't, he, he didn't actually fight in Korea. He ended up um, coming back. But um, they, they've seen a lot of shit. And so they're not easily shaken by the moment we're in. I'll also say this. The grandmother I was closest to is gone. And she was a really important part of my life. Her husband, my, my maternal grandfather, is still alive. He's the one that fought in the Battle of the Bulge. My, my father's parents are much more conservative than I am. And we are now finding ourselves on different sides of an ideological spectrum that I am finding extremely challenging. What are those conversations like? We don't talk about it much because one of the things that I think is a hallmark of my grandparents and I making different choices is that their fears are very different from mine. And I have spent a lot of my career traveling around the world and meeting people from all over who were all incredibly kind to me. And I think my grandparents, even though they've lived such a long time, something about getting older, I think, creates can create a, a myopia where you start to be afraid of the things that are different than you. And they lived in a world where they weren't exposed to the kinds of people that I'm exposed to. So it's not their fault that the first time they're having a relationship with an African-American person is because they live in a nursing home. <laughs> but that's their reality. Part of it is just the world that they, they've grown up in. And that's not their fault. You know, my, my grandpa, Ralph, doesn't, doesn't take anything too seriously. I mean, not that he's joking around. He just, he has a lot of perspective about where his problems fit in the grand scheme of things. And he just doesn't, nothing rattles him. He, his blood pressure doesn't change. You know, he's going in for surgery and they're just like, your, your heart rate's 55. Like, what's going on? He's just really, he doesn't worry. He doesn't worry. He's not stressed. And people right now are very stressed. But but by the way, in several articles written about you, Miss Carrie Coon, there are dozens of people, co-workers, <laughs> that have described you on set this way. Your own husband, Tracy Letts, said, even on the post with Steven Spielberg, she did not shake, she did not tremble, she did not get nervous. <laughs> David Fincher, on your first movie, first time ever on set, didn't need much coaching. <laughs> Feels like there's some stability there. Maybe so. Maybe so. I hadn't made the connection between myself and them as some fundamental characteristic, because I guess I like to think of it as... It can be all yours. Well, it's not, not, to, not to say that I, I don't, I'm not happy to share it with them. I just hadn't thought of it that, like that. <laughs> but, but I just mean... I think there's something for an artist to accepting that they're in the place that they're, they're, they're supposed to be. Because if you don't, if you walk into that room feeling like you don't belong there, how are you ever going to be confident enough to do your best work? And I learned when I got Virginia Woolf, which was my big break in the Chicago theater that ended up being my big break in TV and film, I had no idea that was going to go to Broadway, but I had to show up in that room like I belonged there. And the message was, you have this job, so you do belong here. You have to step into that and accept it. Because insecurity and fear is not going to help you make good choices as an artist. And I remember I was, I was just out of school and I was doing a play. And I was, like a lot of women and probably a lot of people, I was a real people pleaser. 
I was always trying to do guess the thing that somebody wanted from me so that they wouldn't be disappointed in me. What a terrible place to make artistic choices from. And I had a director say, Carrie, I really admire and respect Carrie, the good student, but I don't want to work with Carrie, the good student. I want to work with Carrie, the artist. And that was a huge moment for me. And then I had another director say, wow, you can't really take a compliment or talk about anything without making a joke. And I thought, you're right. Silence was very awkward. I always had to fill silences. And so I was always joking around, which is, you know, how the role I played in my family too. And to have somebody call me on it was really hard to take. But then it let me start to just like be uncomfortable, like just be quiet and be in this discomfort and see if you can stand it. And of course, you always can because everything changes. That's the only thing we can be assured of. Everything is going to change. Hard to believe right now. (laughs) It might not be for the better. (laughs) Should we take 10 seconds? Sure. How was that? You know, reset. I didn't run away screaming, (laughs) thinking about the abyss. No, that, that would have been recorded on the mic. Right. Being a mother and also being a person in this larger than life moment that we're in, have you been thinking about how much value you have as a performer and and what is the value of performing right now? One of the things I consider is where is the best place to put my energy in this historical moment and because of the life I've lived up to now, it probably won't be fruitful for me to go back to school and become an immigration lawyer, for example. That, that the best thing I can do is continue to be as good as I can be at the thing that I'm being so that it will yield perhaps resources or projects that can make an impact and that I can use whatever modicum of influence I have to make sure that those projects are moving forward responsibly, whether it's about creating waste or social justice or the kinds of stories we're telling. I guess I recognize my limitations in that this is not a time in my life to change and that all that these conversations now always feel really existential because I have a child who's going to have to grow up in this world. Though I am a very, I would, I, I think easygoing and lighthearted is how people would describe me that spend time with me. I'm also, I, I trend toward the cynical. My family's pretty sarcastic and dry and cynical. So I am not hopeful necessarily as hopeful as, for example, Tracy is in this moment. Tracy always says, without art, you die. That's something that his father said to him when he was young. Nobody ever said that to me, and I don't always believe it. I have to really consciously remind myself that the art is important and look for examples of where it's making a tremendous impact you know, on the zeitgeist. What are you and Tracy telling your child about what's happening right now? We don't censor ourselves much around him for good or ill. He's two and a half. We explained to him that the reason we don't go within six feet of other people is because there's a really bad cold. There's a virus and we don't want to give it or catch it. We, so we do say stuff like that to him without fear. You know, we're not, we don't do it in a way that's <laughs> spooky, you know, but we just want him to be responsible. And I, I come, I, whatever I read about parenting, one of the things that stuck with me is just being really honest with kids 
in a level they can understand about what's going on. So, you know, we move around a lot. So one of the things you have to figure out with a two and a half year old is when do you tell him that you're leaving for three days? You don't want him to anticipate it because they don't have any sense of time, but you don't want him to be caught off guard by it either. So it's like all of the information we're juggling is this morning I had a conversation with him about recycling because there was a picture of a bunch of trash in the ocean on the front page and he was eating his oatmeal and he says, what's that? And so I said, well, that's, you know, that's why we have these recycling boxes because otherwise our plastic ends up in the ocean. And that's why we never throw trash on the ground. You know, you just have this conversation about what recycling is to a two and a half year old. And he's a kid who loves animals. So it's like, this is one of the ways we save animals, right? It's just on their level. That's how we're talking to him. Is that right? I don't know. I'm 25. Don't ask me. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, you're you're closer. You're closer to his age than you are to mine. Not really. That's not but true. It feels that way. <laughs> oh, thank. Is that is that a knock no, on no, my not, maturity? That's no. That's a that's a knock on my maturity. Oh really? Okay. I'm sure it could go either way. <laughs> that's me being old, and you being fresh faced and young and open minded. Like a two and a half year old. Let's let's be honest. If people saw the zooms right now, they would think you're younger than I am. I I look I <laughs> no look way. fatigued. It's just my tired. selfie light. You do have a selfie light on, don't you? I had to get it for a. I had to do a photo shoot. I had, I did a I did a zoom photo shoot. This this guy took control of my phone and took pictures with it. So I had to get some equipment. Okay. Let's look ahead a few years. What do you want for yourself? I hope that what I make in the future while I have a career is making a contribution to the conversation that's making the world better. While you have a career? Is it in jeopardy? Do we need to return to this conversation about women in Hollywood? Oh, come on. Well, here, okay. it's changing. Okay. The The stories are changing. They're changing because of television. See, this, this, but this, as you I'm, pointed I'm out, optimistic about you. See, this is, but this is the difference. I know. I'm so glad to hear that. I love optimism. I do. It gives me hope. But, you know, you pointed out that movies like The Nest don't get made anymore. Yeah. Because that middle level of film is gone. Mm-hmm. It's gone. It's just tentpole movies and like tiny, tiny indies. And then there's television has kind of taken over what that mid-level of film used to occupy. And so there's a lot of innovation there because there's so much content. So there are a lot of really interesting female voices in particular right now. And and so TV is kind of where the most interesting roles are. Film roles are still shit because the good ones don't get made. Yeah. So you might read something great and nobody will ever give somebody money to make it. So I have to rely on TV for that. This film is a miracle. It is, isn't it? I mean, it really doesn't. It, and it, he's, you know, Sean's sensibility is he's so much like a European auteur director. He doesn't, he doesn't feel like an American director. And, you know, he spent some time in the UK and Matthias is Hungarian. A great, you know, our DP is fantastic. Just a brilliant DP. It, it really is such a good movie. And, and mm-hmm. this is only his second because he can't get money to make movies. And it's so radically different. His vo- his vocabulary, his vo- visual vocabulary, I think is quite, like you could say that's a Sean Durkin movie, but I think you're right. The movies themselves are not the same. It's not They're like different. he's retreading. No. Yeah, I, good. I'm so glad. I hope people find it. And I, I hope this conversation helps. Before we go, when Haskell grows up, how will you explain what you do? I'm afraid that my son is already showing signs of doing what I do. No. And you know what? He's also more attractive than either of us, which is, we thought we were going to have this, 
we were really prepared to have a very ugly child. You were. I was a really ugly baby, absolutely. And Tracy had this freakishly large head. And we were like, he's going to be ugly. It's okay. But he is stunning. My boy is objectively attractive in a very classical sense, which I was not prepared for. I'm not prepared for what the world will mean for him if he continues to trend this way. And he already memorizes these books and he just runs around reciting them and correcting himself if he doesn't like the way it came out. Oh, boy. (laughs) And likes, you know, likes to perform these books for people. He loves it when people are listening to him. And if you interrupt him, he gets mad. So I think I have an act. So I don't think I'm going to have to explain to Haskell (laughs) what we do at all. And we try to make a point of reading together. We all sit down on Sundays. We have pancakes and bacon and then we all read our books. So hopefully he gets the message that storytelling is important. In case he does need an explanation, I think I have one. Oh, I want to hear it. If you don't mind, there is uh, a piece of poetry that I believe you like. And I thought maybe you'd want to read it here. Okay. Oh, yeah. You want me to read it? If you'd like. Okay. Messenger by Mary Oliver My work is loving the world. Here th- It's going to make me cry. My work is loving the world. Here the sunflowers, there the hummingbird, equal seekers of sweetness. Here the quickening yeast, there the blue plums. Here the clam deep in the speckled sand. Are my boots old? Is my coat torn? Am I no longer young and still half-perfect? Let me keep my mind on what matters, which is my work, which is mostly standing still and learning to be astonished. The Phoebe, the Delphinium, the sheep in the pasture, and the pasture, which is mostly rejoicing since all the ingredients are here, which is gratitude to be given a mind and a heart and these body clothes, a mouth with which to give shouts of joy to the moth and the wren, to the sleepy dug-up clam, telling them all over and over how it is that we live forever. I wasn't prepared for that. (laughs) Sometimes we got to improvise. Yeah. Carrie Coon, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. So long. That was Carrie Coon. Her new film, The Nest, is available in select theaters around the country September 18th. It will be available at home, on demand, November 17th. For more info, go to www.nestmovie.com. Next up, we have Kat Solon. She is a maddeningly brilliant artist, a director. She's also, in part, Responsible for The Shivering Truth, a stop-motion animated anthology created by Vernon Chapman of South Park fame. I could describe the show to you. I could. But Kat has a log line she shares at the top of this episode that is so perfect, so beautiful, that I'd rather not compete. What's important to know is that this program is more than you expect. 
It's surreal and unhinged and terrifying, and yet, at the same time, focused on the messiness of being human. It has existential concerns and trivial ones. It's grotesque and beautiful. It's two minds, Chapman and Cat, converging into one. It's the shivering truth, which you can find right now on Adult Swim and Hulu. In case you'd like to look at some visual references of Kat's work while you're listening to this, be sure to visit her site at www.katsolen.com. That's katsolen, S-O-L-E-N.com. We dive into the nuts and bolts of how an animated show gets made, why she started creating in the first place, and what she hopes for the future of a changing industry. Enjoy. Okay, Kat Solon, how are we feeling? I'm feeling pretty good. I'm, I guess I should talk into the microphone. I'm feeling good. How are you? That's usually what people do on these podcasts. <laughs> I wanted to say at the top, I know you a little bit, but I actually don't know that much about you. And I was watching season two of your show, The Shivering Truth, and I'm confused. So I have a central confusion, which is you are by my estimate, one of the kindest, most gentle people I have met working in Los Angeles. And yet this show, deeply disturbing, won't be able to sleep for weeks. (laughs) Tell me what you make of the thing that you're making right now. (laughs) It's so interesting to me because Vernon, who writes the show, we kind of worked together for about like a crazy amount, like seven years to figure out what we wanted to make together. And then, and that was kind of like loose, heady conversations over drinks and food about stories we liked and things we liked. And then he one day just out of the blue called me up and was like, I wrote something for us. And I was like, oh, this is okay. I'm excited. And, you know, when somebody, when a, when a writer, especially a really good writer sends you a script that they wrote for you it's like they're handing you a baby that Mm -hmm. you that is yours now to take care of and to so we both kind of have never (laughs) thought of it as disturbing but it is I'm not saying it's not but it's not disturbing to you no no not at all like it is dark and it's sad yes and funny (laughs) but to me it's allegorical the allegory and the and the surrealism of it take it away from being disturbing or scary and uh-huh. make turn it to me into like a puzzle that you have to solve and figure out what it's saying to you and what it's about and but i like that it scares people at first because i think the things that scare us the most are the things that we should mm-hmm. think like question the most and try to understand the most i actually have a lot to say about showing darker movies to kids at a young age and whether or not they like what it did to me versus what, you know, you fear it might do to kids. So what did it do to you? (laughs) My favorite movie as a kid was The Witches. And it's still to this day is one of the scariest movies I've ever seen. And Nicholas Rogue and Jim Henson with Angelica Houston. And I think it's a a perfect movie. I love it. I don't think it should be remade. But uh, that movie scared me so deeply 
I went and saw it in the theater with my mom, and I wasn't even that young. I, I think I was like 11, maybe. And uh, when we got home, I made my mom take down every painting in the house because there's a scene where a little girl gets stuck in a painting. <laughs> I was convinced that all the paintings in the house were, were staring at me and were going to hurt me. But I also, what it did to me, and same with movies like The Wizard of Oz or any 2D animated movie, but mostly movies that had crossover visual effects that were practical visual effects. When a movie scared me, I would stop and think about how it was doing that. And I would try to come up with an explanation for it. And my explanation for it was how they made it and how they did the tricks. And Uh. I would teach myself how the visual effects were done by explaining to myself what they did, not knowing at all what they did, just trying to guessing at what they did. And that's what made me want to make movies. Like, <laughs> So you arrived at making movies as a way to quell your own fear about the movies in front of you. Yeah. Trying to understand why I was scared of it and what they were doing to make me scared of it and how I could control that fear and turn it into something that was actually a cool thing, a trick. In retrospect, when you're looking back on you as a kid needing to control that fear, would you describe yourself as a controlling child? Yeah. <laughs> I was, I was, I'm the older of the two, me and my, I have a little brother. Right. And to me, he's still five, but I think he's like 37 now. Um, <laughs> Permanently five years old. Yes. I was extremely controlling and not in a, I don't think in a tyrantial way, but definitely in a, um, I feel some responsibility to take care of the world way. Like I actually didn't sleep at night very much because, and I still am like this a little bit because I noticed that everybody else in the world was asleep at night. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh no, if something bad happens, nobody's going to be awake to, to fix it. And I should stay up so that I'm awake to fix the thing when it happens. And, and I can sleep during the day when a lot of other people are awake and they can, (laughs) they can fix it. I used the time awake at night in the middle of the night. I would stay up watching old movies and drawing all night long. Mm -hmm. And so it was a very therapeutic time for me too to be up really late at night. (laughs) Thinking about the work you're doing now, skip ahead 30 years of making this program on Adult Swim. Is it therapeutic to, to build these worlds that are a little demented, but undeniably existential. (laughs) I've never thought about that before, but you're right. It is very therapeutic. There's always been a relationship, I think, between animation and scary things, animation and horror, like Tim Burton, like that world. And I feel like sometimes newer things rely too much on that old aesthetic that he established that was his. And I feel the same way about puppetry and Jim Henson. Like, I feel people rely on the Muppet aesthetic too much. And I really love the challenge of finding a new aesthetic for something that's scary and finding other things that are scary. I want to find a new look of horror, new look of thriller aesthetic. So I love when things are scary and I get to kind of 
figure out like what's a monster we've never seen before that we wouldn't know existed, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's really fun for me. And not necessarily making a monster because I love monsters. More just like, what's a new monster? <laughs> to someone who hasn't seen this show, what is the log line that you would give them for context? So Vernon's writing is beautifully surrealistic, also <laughs> darkly unabashedly funny. And so what I kind of try, I try to kind of capture that in my description of it, which is like, if it's an anthology series, it's not serialized. So I say it's like a Twilight Zone was a snake that was eating its own tail and then shitting out diamonds. (laughs) I don't know if that's right or not. (laughs) I think that's wonderful. Of the show, you said... (laughs) The greatest thing is taking a script that sounds absolutely impossible to make and having to figure out how to make it. Yeah. Is that fair? It's kind of my mantra also just related to why I love working with writers. I write my own stuff too and I develop projects. But my favorite thing about working with writers is that they bring something, you know, you got a writer like Vernon who writes things on purpose to that your eyes have never seen before and you have to figure out how to how to make it a visual thing Mm -hmm. and he tries really hard to make that a challenge like he's obsessed with like what can we make that's never been shown but for me even if it's a story that is very clear to a reader's psyche it's still I I get so much satisfaction from listening to a song for the first time, reading a script for the first time, reading a book for the first time, and living in a world that I never imagined before, no matter how mundane that world is. It's my favorite thing to do. That's why I make things. That's why I take photos. That's why I draw. That's why I paint things. That's why I build things is because I am inspired by something I read or something I saw or something I experienced that I never thought could exist. And when I do it myself, when I write myself, it's a little different, you know, it's a little more in in my own head and I'm already kind of producing it as I'm writing it. It seems like Vernon writes it and your job is to translate it mm-hmm. on a practical level Yeah. in trying to solve this big puzzle that you're talking about. What does a typical episode production look like? Vernon writes the scripts and then sends them to me. I read them, usually with a drink. (laughs) And uh, I sort of try to read them with a completely neutral perspective. I try to just let it happen to me and not think about it too much while I'm reading it for the first time. So that, because that's to me is the only time after the first time I read a script, I no longer get to see it the way the audience will see the movie. It has now become mine and turned into something that I have to make. So I really try to let that moment be as honest as possible and as as sort of neutral as possible. Is that why you read them with a drink? Yeah, because you let go of yourself a little bit. At least I do. I let go of myself a tiny bit, not a bunch of drinks or else I don't know what I've read. But but I try to just like be a little. It's also, I say I take better photos when I've had a drink because you're just a little (laughs) bit, your eyes are a little, little off from where they normally are. Or I also say like, 
when you're in a new place you've never been, you take better photos or you see things differently because you're just confused just enough to like get to really mm-hmm. see things, you know? <laughs> no, no, I, I totally know. I, I, I do this entire <laughs> podcast drunk the entire time. So it's, it's really... <laughs> I was going to say you looked a little wasted. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. It's it's just a Tuesday afternoon. (laughs) Hey, I won't judge you. Um, (laughs) So I read it and then I usually have a few of them to read. And then what happens is I kind of let it go after that. And I start sort of breaking it down the way you do with the producers, like breaking down the script, figuring out what all the elements are, figuring out every little thing that needs to happen. Then Vernon and I will get together in person for, well, we used to get together in person for long stretches of time. We will spend all day long together. And what we do is we sit in different restaurants and coffee shops when you could do that. And we walk around the city, like LA or New York or Portland. Portland's where we produce the show. I live in LA and he lives in New York. And we just take long walks and then stop at a coffee shop or a bar or a restaurant and sit there for an hour or two. And I take out my sketchbook and he just pretty much tells me the script, like just from his memory. We we have the scripts with us, but he knows it. And we just talk about every tiny little part and I thumbnail every single thing he's saying. And I thumbnail any thoughts I have or ideas I have. Also, I draw questions for him. Like, I'll draw what I'm imagining a room layout looks like, how I'm imagining the blocking of the scene. And we'll have a serious conversation about, like, does that work for everything that has to happen here? And where will it go? And what does it mean for the design? And what's his character? What is he like? What is his character's shoes? How much money does his character make? Like we just break it down and have these, and we, our conversations will go off on little tangents about the character and we'll, we'll figure out like kind of everything about that character's life. Also just what the, what it is that we're trying to say. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, he knows in his head. And I think a lot of writers do know what they're picturing the the world to be when they're writing it. And I love figuring that out. I love knowing like, where is the kid's room? Is it around the corner of the left or the right? You know, like, I just want to know what are you seeing inside your head and how can I make it be that? And also does it work? You know, like, can we make it work that Mm -hmm. way? So, so that's like, it's the best, the best. I love it. And I have sketchbooks full of crazy drawings from this show. And then I take those sketchbooks back to Portland and I sit down with, we have storyboard artists. Well, I I usually organize them and have to email them to the storyboard artists. But then I sit with the storyboard artists and we, they'll start boarding the boarding process and they'll have radio plays that either Vernon, like Vernon usually pre-records the radio plays that they'll be following. And then we sit, get to dig into the scenes and, and ask more questions I think it's through most of the pre-pro and all, all of the production, mine and, and Vernon's jobs are to be able to answer every single tiny question there is, especially with animation, both 2D and stop motion, which is the show's a stop motion animated show. You're creating everything from scratch. So you have to have answers. You have to know what kind of tape dispenser they're using. You have to know what kind of telephone they're using. You have to know what their hair looks like. I love the live action world in that, Some of these things are usually decided for you. But at the same time, I love what that animation has Mm. trained me to know why that's important, to understand the context of objects and the context of 
what the difference is between if a character has a, a mop or a broom. Like mop means they've already swept, you know, a broom means they're just getting started. And what does that mean for where the character's at in their life? How many people does it take to make one of these episodes? Because the worlds are so intricate. All in, probably a 60-person crew. And, you know, there is the misconception, I think, that stop motion is like can be done by one person alone in their house, which is what I did all through college. But my college stuff doesn't look nearly as good as this. Right. You know, you have to have, and all of these people have very specific, special skills that you can only learn by doing them in this industry. But I think it's the director's job to understand every job of the crew enough to empathize with the limitations of that job. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you should have made some stuff by yourself. If you want to do animation, you should have maybe tried to animate something on your own before. If you want to build a puppet, you should have maybe built a puppet before. You have to have kind of tried it and know what you're asking your crew to do. And then hire people that you know are better at that thing than you are. Like right. a puppet builder who is really good at building puppets and could build a puppet way better than you could ever build a puppet. You know, an animator who can animate a scene and bring out the life of a character so much better than you ever could on your own. And same with down to an editor who can see the movie in a way that you never could have seen it. And then let those people do their job, <laughs> you know, and, and be there for them when you come up with challenges or scenarios that you have to solve. But then also just to trust them when they say that something is out of grasp for what this show is able to do with the money and time we have. There is a, a documentary that I'm sure you've seen, Six Days to Air, which is a behind-the-scenes piece of what one week looks like on the making of South Park, which I think also Vernon worked on. How close does that resemble your experience of making this show? <laughs> I fear it. I fear it all the time because... One of the biggest lessons I've learned from the industry is when you deliver on budget and on time, next time they're going to give you less budget and less time. And that documentary proves it. And that documentary shows that if <laughs> you're going to end up making your show in a week, if you do a good job making your show. And so you have to like figure out how to how to be responsible with the money that you're given, but also, I don't know, I'm so afraid of ending up where they are. I think they do a really good job at it, but I just don't even, I don't want to do it that way ever. I like planning. I like time. <laughs> I'm so afraid of it, but I love that. I actually, when I watched that, I had just the same day gone to the Stanley Kubrick exhibit at LACMA. Uh -huh. And so I'd been reading all his, all those documents that were in that exhibit. And then I also watched Indie Game that was on Netflix. It was a, a documentary about people making independent video games. And I did not sleep that night. I was like traumatized. <laughs> like, like, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> yeah. You were afraid of that documentary in the same way that you were afraid of the films that you grew up on. Uh-oh. <laughs> that's not, that's scary. I'm going to end up there and I don't want to. <laughs> oh man, you're right. I mean, it does, it does nothing. Nothing makes me happier than working. And I like right now, it's so weird to talk to you right now about work because this is probably the longest I've gone in my adult life without a job. Uh-huh. 
without having something that I have been hired to do by somebody. And I'm trying to be creative, but it's just a weird moment because I've always, work has always been my favorite thing to do. And I've always found a way to do it. I grew up in Arizona where you don't like the idea of doing something creative as a job is like absurd. And, you know, when are you going to get a real job is the thing, you know? So I've always kind of felt like a need to apologize for caring enough about this that I worked hard to get to it, you know? When did you stop apologizing for the most part? I don't know that I have. I'm trying really hard. So maybe if, maybe, maybe doing shivering, maybe since shivering started in that there was a moment, my first music videos on MTV, I was really young. I was, I think, 20, 21 or something. I was still in school in Chicago. I sort of <laughs> didn't know at all how to do what I wanted to do. I just knew that I just had to start doing it. And I did. And I kind of have felt like I didn't have a guide. So I, I for a long time, until I got to like my mid-30s, thought I was just kind of going the wrong way and doing it wrong and didn't know how to do it right. And I, because I saw other people getting opportunities that I wasn't getting who had started around the time I started and also had been working as much as I had. But they were, they could afford houses and families and things that I still don't know that I'll ever be able to really afford. And I really thought it was me just like either not being a good director or not knowing how to like work within the industry and play the system. And I still feel like I don't understand the industry very well, mm -hmm. even though I probably understand it much better than a lot of people. But so it was around then my mid thirties when I started looking at people and I was like, somehow these people have things that I don't have and we're doing the same thing and we've been doing the same thing for a very long time. And I think that that's what's made me less likely to apologize for where I'm at because I know I've been doing it and I know looking at other people that I should be at a certain place that I'm not. I don't see it as like toxic jealousy or something like that. I see it as like it's what makes me go and inspires me and pushes me is like, okay, I got to figure out how to how to do this with what I'm able to do. Mm -hmm. Before we go, I want to watch something with you, something that was on your television screen as a kid growing up. Okay, do you mind if we watch this? Okay. What do you mean, no? No! Mike, you can't go in there! Who do you think you are turning down a job? Don't pull that! No! This is a class show. Hollywood's greatest effects. No, don't cut it! So, Mr. Big Shot, you don't want to do titles. What the hell do you want to do? What do I want to do? I'll show you what I want to do. I want to do this. What is this? A cartoon? No, it's a live-action feature film with a real story. A real story? With real people? Yes, and special effects that mean something. They aren't just frosting on the cake. You can't make features. You can't even shake hands. You gotta crawl before you can leap. Harvey, you're the only one that can leap from a crawl. I'll bet you couldn't even make a real movie with bedroom scenes, chase scenes, crowd scenes, music. You gotta have wide shots, two shots, medium shots, close-ups, ECUs, over the shoulders, sync sound. You're just an effects man. So, Cap. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You're giddy with excitement over there. What did we just watch? The Wizard of Speed and Time. I think that was a trailer or was it the opening credits? It was the opening. 
of The Wizard of Speed and Time, a movie that I, as a kid, rented from the video store near our house, like, maybe a hundred times. It was my favorite thing ever. <laughs> and it's, um, and it's funny because, should I talk about it? Do you want me to tell you yes. about it? <laughs> no, I, I just wanted to play a, a random <laughs> segment of the, of this film, this obscure film, and then we can just move on. Of course, talk about it. So it's a movie about <laughs> making the movie that you're watching. It's you're watching the movie being made as you're watching it. And it's made by this guy, Mike Jitlove, who I think had had a kind of short-lived but fruitful uh, career at Disney for a bit that he came out of not happy with the company and with just Hollywood industry stuff in general. But at the time when I was a kid and I watched that movie, I was like, this is a movie that is about making movies and I'm going to make a movie like this someday. Like it made me want to make movies so badly. And it also, cause it, I was already doing in my head when I watched movies where it showed me how it was being made. And I was obsessed with knowing how, how they were doing the effects and seeing that it was something he was making it with, the whole theme of the thing is that he's making it with no money and no tools and nothing. And I was like, I can do this. I can do this by myself. I can make this. It just, it inspired the hell out of me. And then I watched it. I didn't watch it for a long time, probably until like my early twenties when I found a guy on the internet who had a VHS copy of it. The visual effects in that opening sequence are done mostly on a down shooter animation stand, a handful, maybe 15, 20 of them in the United, all the United States that were made by studios. And like Disney had a few of them, huge ones for all of their cell animation to make it look like there's depth in between the layers of paintings that were done for the backgrounds and foreground. But you could also do like the, the Star Wars opening credits were done on a down shooter stand. You can do a lot of really cool visual effects with the down shooter stand. So I wanted one and I wanted one that was my own in my house that I could just play around on whenever I felt like it. And I looked up online, like, how can I find one? And I got to like, <laughs> oh, I wonder what Mike Jitlove's doing. And this was in probably 2001 or 2002. And I looked him up and he had a GeoCities Starfield website. It's probably still exactly like this. His website's probably the same. And at the bottom of it, he said, I'm selling my animation stand. Here's my phone number. And I called him and I talked to him for two hours just about animating and making stuff. And he told me, you know, when you make things that are small, when you make tiny things, make sure you spend time going outside and looking at things that are really far away as often as you can so that your eyes don't go bad because he's getting older and his eyes were going bad. And he gave me advice about carpal tunnel and avoiding like your hands going from making tiny things. And then I said, can I buy your animation stand? And he said, oh, I don't want to sell it to you. I want to sell it to like the Smithsonian or a museum. It needs to be in a museum. And he wouldn't sell me his animation stand. <laughs> but I still was like so happy to talk to him. Well, hold on for a second before we move forward. So this man who worked at Disney <laughs> understands what a large apparatus looks like. 
And in turn, when deciding to sell his prized possession, makes a sort of Craigslist post to his janky 2000 website. And when someone tries to contact them, he's not interested unless it's the Smithsonian. <laughs> yeah. By the way, the Smithsonian is not going through your website. I mean, this guy has everything all wrong. I know he's your hero. How did she get my number? How did she find me? Yeah, he didn't. <laughs> I find this story very distressing, but also inspiring. So, so go on, Kat. I know. I mean, I... Uh, he is a lesson in what the industry can do to people. So then I watched it in my 30s, like early 30s. I watched it again because I, I didn't. I watched it in my early 20s and I was like, oh, this is still exciting. And I hadn't seen it in so long. I was like, oh, visual effects. Yay, yay, yay. Watched it in my 30s. <laughs> and for the first time, I realized the movie is so scathingly mm-hmm. angry. And it is not a movie that you watch to be inspired by to make films it's a warning it's like don't don't do it like don't try to do this and and, but by the time I finally figured that out it was way too late and I I I'm still gonna try to do it so I don't know (laughs) what else am I gonna do yeah (laughs) you learned the lesson too late and now you have to make movies yes everybody should watch the movie I guess my follow-up question is are you glad you learned the lesson late? Yes. I actually even wonder if I could have ever learned it earlier because there's also the thing that happens, you know, as a, a young woman trying to make things in the industry where a lot of older women <laughs> repeatedly try to warn you and try to tell you that it's a bit messed up. It's getting better. I really believe it's getting better. But, you know, when I was 20, I was like, I'm on top of the world. I have a music video on MTV and I, I am going to be so fine. Everything's great. And, you know, older women, older female directors and older female producers would say like, Kat, it's, that's, you're doing fine right now, but this is really tough. And I'd be like, no, not me. I'm not going to let the fact that I'm a woman be to matter at all. You know, like I told myself, I'm just going to go through it like a man would. I'm just going to plow through and do whatever I want and not have it matter that I'm a woman. Thinking that that's what other women had done, that they had walked into it being like, I'm a woman and I'm here to make a movie. They hadn't done it either that way, you know? But I, I don't know. For some reason I told myself that that's what they had done and that if I did it this other way, I would be fine. And that's not true. It's really hard. It's, I I don't know. I think it's okay. But I don't know that I could have been warned earlier. I don't know that I would have listened. My mom always says, like, if it was easy, everybody would do it. I do think everybody tries. <laughs> I think, like, a lot of people want to do this. I guess my goal, like, as I, if and when I kind of get where I want to be, if that ever is even possible, I want to help other people get there. And I want crews to feel like they're respected and taken care of. They're credited for the work they do. It's I've been thinking about it a lot lately. <laughs> All that stuff. You've been thinking about where you want to go. Just about how the industry can be better to the cooperative effort of filmmaking and not be so much about the auteur and like the genius or the like creative one person who helmed this whole project 
I don't know, I've just been thinking about it a lot, like in relation to everything that's happening right now in regard to the capitalist system crumbling, (laughs) I'm thinking about how we're supposed to move forward in an industry that is structured with such a hierarchy in order to do what we do. And I just want to make it better. I want I want somehow the crews to feel like they're really being valued for the work that they're doing and the thing they're making. To me, it seems very obvious that you as a director talking about how as a director, you need to have done the things you're asking people to do before you're asking them, which is some part of empathy, but it's also just good leadership. And to me, that seems very much connected to you being the older sibling growing up in charge of your sister, staying awake at night in case something bad happens, as if young Cat was going to be able to solve it. She wasn't. But it's a nice, it's a nice thought. It was my little brother. But Sorry, yes. it's yeah. your little brother. <laughs> it's okay. Neither of you would have solved it. You both would have been screwed. I hate to say it. But... <laughs> The point is, it seems you fundamentally understand the value of collaboration and how it needs to be changed. It's really hard. <laughs> it's I don't know that it's something you can figure out staying up all night watching Nick at Night and drawing. It's not something we're going to figure out on this podcast either. <laughs> yeah, it's true. But on the other side, I have a good sense that you're going to be part of what that future looks like in your field. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. That's nice of you. I want to tell everyone, Sam said so. Kat Solon, thank you very, very much. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. This was really fun. Thank you. And that's our show. Special thanks this week to Brenna Rifkin and Stacy Tesser. I also want to give a special thanks to our illustrator, Krisha Shenoy, and our editors for this episode, Eli Weiss, Rena Zhang, David Harding, and Andre Lin. These midweek talks, which I love doing, do take a lot of energy from our whole team, so much love to them. If you'd like to learn more about Carrie Coon and Kat Solon, visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. You can subscribe to Talk Easy on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google, Acast, wherever you do your listening. If you'd like to join our mailing list, email me at sam at talkeasypod.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at talkeasypod. And as I said... This show would not be possible without our team. Our executive producer is Janik Sabravo. Our associate producer is Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our assistant editors are David Harding, Eli Weiss, and Rena Zhang. Marketing is by Patrice Lee. Interns are Jules Rector and Grace Perkins. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Graphics by Ian Jones, Derek Gabrizak, and Ethan Seneca. And finally... The show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of Talk Easy. I'll see you this coming Sunday with Miranda July. Until then, stay safe and so long. 
our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.